This morning we have the incredible privilege once again of celebrating the sacrament of holy baptism. It's uh, one of the most exciting things that I think we get to do in the life of the church. I know as a pastor, it's one of the most sacred things that I'm able to participate in as well. And that is when we acknowledge God's grace. The sacrament is a sign of God's grace. So we have two. We do baptism, we do communion. Both are signs of God's grace. Why do we baptize a child? Well, one of the reasons is we recognize that God's grace is offered to a child long before the child is ever aware of it. The scriptures make it clear in the Psalms that it is God who knits us together in our mother's womb. God intimately involved in the formation of a child. And when God called Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, God, I'm too young. Well, remember that, that God said, Jeremiah, before you were ever born, I knew who you were. While you were still in your mother's womb, I consecrated you. So when does God start loving us? The moment we accept him as Savior and Lord or long before? We acknowledge that God's grace starts long before. And our prayer is that this young man will grow in his faith, will grow in his commitment, and someday accept Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior and Lord. So we witness as God's loving arms are already reaching down around him. We'll witness then as a family comes up, they're going to reach up and take one of those hands of God and they will vow to raise their son in the Christian faith, the Christian life, so that he would be led, when he's old enough to make his own decision, that, that he would be led to accept Jesus Christ in his own heart as personal Savior and Lord. Then we as the church, we're going to reach up, take that other hand of God that's reaching down, we're going to, we're going to join hands with his family, and we too will vow as the body of Christ that we'll do everything that we can do to nurture this faith so that someday he will be led to accept Christ as his own Savior and Lord. So we're going to invite Mark and Sarah to come forward with Austin. Some of the water that will be used today actually came out of the Jordan River that a family member was able to bring and share. And I had the great privilege of going to visit with the family and spend some time. And we have a very bright young man here to celebrate God's grace. So now I ask, what name is given this child? Austin Hi, Austin. Good to see you, buddy. You are credible. So now I ask, on behalf of the whole church, do you repent of your sin? If so, please answer, I do. I do. And do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you put your whole trust in his grace, and do you promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ is open to people of all ages, nations, and races? If so, please answer, I do. I do. And according to the grace that is given to you, Will you remain faithful members of Christ's Holy Church, and will you serve as Christ's representatives in this world? If so, please answer, I will. I will. And will you nurture Austin Daly and Christ's Holy Church, that by your teaching and by your example, he may be guided to accept God's grace for himself, to profess his faith openly, and to lead a Christian life? If so, please respond, I will. And now to you, the congregation, the body of Christ, do you reaffirm both your rejection of sin and your commitment to Christ? If so, please respond, we do. We do. And will you nurture one another in the Christian faith and life? And will you include Austin and David now before you in your care? If so, please respond, we will. We will. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your love and your grace. A grace that is 
at work in our lives long before we are ever aware of it. Your love for us is continuing. And God, we pray that you would bless this water and he who is to receive it, that it may be a sign of this love and grace and that he may be led to accept you as his own personal Savior and Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You want to touch it? Touch you can touch it. There you go. It's not bad. Austin David, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And may the Holy Spirit work within you that having been born through water and the Spirit, you may be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. God bless you, buddy. And will you celebrate this baptism in Christ? Our scripture today is actually Luke 18. That was last week, so we won't do that again for you. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. We continue our series looking at the gospel according to Luke. It's interesting that at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he shares, you know, there, there are already other things that are written about Jesus. There are other Gospels already been prepared. We, most scholars believe that both Matthew and Luke use the Gospel of Mark as their outline for their Gospels, but yet God inspired Luke to write yet again. And so what is the message that God wants us to hear as told by Luke? And the scripture that we're about to read in Luke 18, beginning of verse 9, this scripture is only found in Luke. Matthew, Mark, John do not include this in their gospel. This is Luke. And we read together. He, meaning Jesus, also told them this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your holy word and for the privilege of studying it together. Now as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's kind of getting to be a nerve-wracking time for clergy, and one of the reasons in the United Methodist Church as we approach the fall, as we start getting to September, October, we know that we are going to get this wonderful packet from the annual conference that's going to be our annual evaluation. And we look forward to this every year. The Staff Parish Relations Committee is going to get together and and with all the clergy, there are six clergy in your church, all the clergy, we're going to be evaluated. We'll fill out all these forms. We send them back to the district superintendent. The district superintendent will read it. They they have these things stuck away in this holy file in the holy house in Charlotte. And, and, And then... If the time comes for us to be relocated, reappointed somewhere, they they go pulling out your evaluations, pulling out your profile, see how you're doing. We love this time of year. (laughs) It's kind of nerve-wracking because the staff here is going to be asked all kinds of questions like preaching. Can the pastor preach? They're going to have to answer the question, and I get to listen to their answer. And then they're going to ask, can the pastor teach? I mean, do they have the ability to put together any kind of coherent thought and transmit that to another group of people? And I'm going to get to hear their answer. Leadership, do they have the ability to lead? Administration, can they put things together and make it work? Pastoral care, are they there for their flock when... People need them to walk with them along their journey. Relationship with the congregation. Do you get the impression they love the people in the congregation or just tolerate them? And so, then the other question is, is do you think the congregation really loves the pastor or just tolerate them? I get to hear the answers to that question. But you know what makes it worse? I'm going to get that packet as well, only I get the exact same question. Mark will get the exact same questions. Ed, Amy, Meredith, Rocio, we all are going to get the same question. We have to fill out a self-evaluation, too, of the exact same question. Can you preach? Can you teach? Can you lead? Can you do administration? Can you, can you, can you, can you? And you want to know the tough thing, because I'm sure you all do that in the corporate world, too, but as pastors, we teach humility. So how do you answer those questions? Because on the one hand, you don't want to sound arrogant. On the other hand, you don't want to sound incompetent. And somehow you have to figure out how to make that work. Can you preach? Well, I guess I'm okay, but multitudes, multitudes come to hear me. I 
mean, you try to figure out how to make this thing work as you go through it. And, and then, you know, recently, or a few years ago, the, the Board of Ordained Ministry added, and the district superintendents of cabinet kind of work on these evaluations together. And when I was on the board, I, I always kind of resisted this, but, you know, a couple years ago they added it, and that's a scale of 1 to 10. So now not only do you get asked the question, can they preach, but on a 1 to scale, 1 to 10, where would you rate them? Oh, great. And on our self-assessment, we have to circle one of those numbers too. And then you're always worried. You're always worried about, well, what if I, I don't want to shoot too high, I don't want to shoot too low. And Well, on preaching, let's say I, I gave myself an 8, but the committee gave me a, a 7. I need a Stephen minister now. How could a whole committee be so wrong? <laughs> and then you try to figure out how, 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 can I, how can I play this system? So, and then it, then it hits us. There was a scripture that said, if you go to a banquet, always sit in the lowest seat because in biblical times, in a banquet, where you sat said something about your relationship with the host and your position of honor. So, so Jesus said, always go for the lowest spot. And so when the host comes in, they can look at you and go, what are you doing way down there? Get up here. You know you deserve to be here. That's the secret. So what we'll do is we'll lowball the Staff Parish Relations Committee. How do you rank yourself? Three. Hoping the committee's going to go, oh, are you kidding me? No, you're an eight at the middle, nine, probably even a nine. I mean, that's what you're hoping is you come in and they, and they go, you are too hard on yourself. Move up here, my child. But the fear is they're going to go, yeah, that's what we had. <laughs> in looking at this scripture... Edward Schweizer, who is a biblical scholar, theologian, said that, that both the Pharisee and the tax collector are actually offering their self-assessment or their self-evaluation to God. And when I read that, it hit me going, wow. I probably should not be so intimidated anymore by the Sapphire's Relations Committee doing evaluation. The real question is, if God gave me an evaluation form and said, I want you to do your self-evaluation on where you are spiritually in your relationship with me, and then I'm going to fill out one, and, and then we're going to get together and compare them. How would, how would we answer that question? How would we go through that and go, in my walk with God, I'll give myself a, and we know God already knows. So Jesus tells this parable. Now, I, I will be honest with you. I love Luke. I think Luke does a phenomenal job. But Luke does something here that I wish Luke had not done. I wish he'd have waited till the end of the story to tell us. But he tells us at the very beginning. He tells us at the beginning in verse 9 that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. He tells us that right up front, and that's kind of like, like ruining the story. My, my brother, for example, he loves NASCAR but he's not always home when the race is on, so he'll record it, but he does not want you talking about it. Because, you know, you already know who won, and he's, he's about to watch it. And, and so 
I'll go, so you don't want me to tell you about Kyle Busch? <laughs> I didn't say he won. I'm just saying you don't want me to tell you. And he'll go, no, I don't want you to say anything. Because once you know who won before you watch it, like if you recorded a game or, or you go to a movie and people go, well, you know, in the end, the character dies. Great, thank you for telling me. You know, ruins the whole thing. And Luke kind of tells us here, he, he puts a buzz in our ear that the reason Jesus told the story was that there were some who considered themselves righteous and regarded others with contempt. So as soon as we hear there was a Pharisee, we go, bad guy, that's the bad guy. Well, try for a moment to hear the story not knowing what you know. Because when Jesus told the story, Luke didn't whisper in their ears. Let me tell you what he's getting ready to do, so you'll be ready for it. He just tells the story. Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Now, the crowd who doesn't know where Jesus is going with this, that only makes sense. A Pharisee was a religious leader. A Pharisee was one who had committed to spiritual disciplines. One who had committed that they would dot every I and cross every T of the law of the Old Testament. They're going to study the Old Testament. They're going to abide by the Old Testament. They're going to live by it and try to be exactly what the Scripture says that they should be. Now, at this point, the crowd doesn't know what's coming because a, a spiritual leader, a Pharisee, coming into the temple was normal. And, and sometimes when we hear Pharisees, we in the church, we have a tendency to think negative because there are several parables and stories that talk about the Pharisees and kind of put them in a negative light. But not every Pharisee was negative. Not every Pharisee was a bad person. I mean, for example... We all love the scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Well, who was Jesus speaking to? A man by the, by the name of Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? We're told that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. One of the spiritual leaders who comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, teacher, holy one, we know that you come from God. Nobody can do the kind of things you do unless God is with you. And if you read the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 39, you will see after Jesus dies that it's Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who joins up with Joseph of Arimathea to take Jesus' body off of the cross and prepare it for burial. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus brings about 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloe to anoint and embalm the body of Jesus. Not all Pharisees were bad. So at this point, the crowd doesn't really know where Jesus is going with this. But then when the Pharisee opens his mouth, it starts becoming pretty obvious that he's got a little sense of arrogance. Just a little sense. I mean, when you start your prayer out by going, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Little hint that there could be a little bit of arrogance going on here. I mean, we're told that, that he comes into the center, gets up front so that everybody can see him because when he prays, it's not really a conversation with God. It's a conversation to everybody else in the name of God. That's one of the things that bugs me sometimes about prayers or children's sermons when we used to do children's sermons a lot. It's kind of like, you know, we'll bring the kids up here, but I'm really going to talk to mom and daddy. Or I'm going to act like I'm talking to God, but I really want you people to hear this. Well... The Pharisee's not really talking to God as much as he is everybody around. And, and he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thieves, 
I'm not a thief. Rogues, or as Jeremiah, Jeremiah's uh, early theologian said, uh, swindlers. I'm not a swindler. Adulterers, I'm faithful. Or, like that guy. I mean, just imagine. I mean, the arrogance to be able to go, I thank you that I'm not like other people, including that tax collector sitting right there. I mean, just imagine. A few moments ago, and Pastor Mark was leading the pastoral prayer, and he gets to the point going, and hear the names we call before you now. If you'd have heard somebody sitting beside of you going, God, I just thank you that I'm not like the person sitting beside me. I mean, we'd be appalled. And that's what he does. And, but, but I'll tell you, I mean, if you're going to be arrogant, you better be able to back it up. He backs it up. He does back it up. He said, I fast twice in the week. You know, according to the law, you only really had to fast once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Now, others fasted on a regular basis as part of their spiritual discipline in their walk with God. But the Pharisee here is going, Lord, I do it uh, twice in the week. You know, I'm kind of like that guy that always, you know, always does the extra credit questions, the extra credit homework. If you want to know more in disciple class, always did the extra questions. It's the kind of guy I mean, I'm God, I'm above and beyond kind of person. So he backs it up, and then he goes on to say, and I tithed. You know, the scripture talks about tithing, where we recognize that 100% of everything we have is a gift from God, and God says, you keep 90% for you and, and, and for you and your family, and, but give 10% back to, to God so that, that the kingdom of God can be continued and we can reach out to the poor and the oppressed and others. And, and, and so he stands up and he goes, God, I, I tithe. Just want you to know. 10%. And, and Lord, I don't argue if it's before or after taxes. I tithe. But then... There's a tax collector. Now, the tax collector is the epitome of a sinner. If you're wanting to know what would be, what would be the kind of person that we could, we could put in a story that everyone, as soon as they hear it, would go, sinner, tax collector. Why? Because the tax collector was considered to be a traitor, for one. I mean, that's why you hear the Pharisees and others complaining when Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. Sinners, bad enough. Even worse, tax collectors. Why? Because the Roman government is occupying Israel, and so this person is considered to be a political traitor because they're collecting taxes for the government that is oppressing your own people. And not only that, tax collectors were known to be corrupt. They were known to overcharge and pocket the difference. They were known to take advantage of the poorest of the poor, and they had the power and the authority to do it. So as soon as someone heard tax collector, they went, sinner for sure. But catch the difference. He didn't walk all the way into the temple. He stood far off. The Pharisee, can you see me? I want, as I get ready to have this prayer, I want you to be able to see. Tax collector barely gets in the door. Standing far off, the scripture said, he wouldn't, even, he wouldn't even lift up his head toward heaven. Now, doesn't that make you wonder, what did he do? I mean, he's feeling bad about something. Because he beats on his chest, and, and he won't even look up, and he's going, God, God, be merciful to me. I know who I am. I am a sinner. 
I mean, it makes you wonder, who did he cheat? Who did he hurt? Who, what did he do? He did something. He feels horrible. God, be merciful to me. I'm, I'm a sinner. What's interesting when you read the scripture is what both of them said is correct. What the Pharisee said about himself is correct. What the tax collector says about himself is correct. Now, good news is he came in as the epitome of a sinner, but Jesus said, but I'll tell you this, that's the guy who left justified. That's the guy who left forgiven. That's the guy who went home justified rather than the other one. Because those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what is God looking for from us when we worship? What is God looking for from us when we pray? I mean, what do we learn from the scripture? And I, I think one of the things that God is looking for from us is authenticity. I mean, the scripture tells us that God already knows what's on our hearts and our minds, the words that are on our lips before they ever come off. And, and so if that's the case, I think what God wants us to do when we come before him is just to be real, to be genuine. To be authentic. I mean, when God created us, according to Genesis, it was to be in a relationship, and a relationship requires genuineness and honesty and openness with each other. And, and that's what God is looking for for us. And he's not looking for us to, to come in and pretend to be something we're not. Just authentic. And humility. God is looking for us to be humble. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm kind of looking forward to that section on my evaluation because I think my humility is one of the things I'm most proud of. <laughs> I, my, my guess is that there's not another United Methodist pastor that's more humble than me. <laughs> I mean, I'm so thankful you are laughing. I shared that at the early service and they just kind of sit there. <laughs> and I went, whoa, people, do you not realize that's a contradiction? Reinhold Niebuhr, as I've shared with you before, I think did a beautiful job describing the original sin as self-interest, that when we want to put ourselves first. And I think that original sin, when Satan hops up on our shoulder and tries to make everything about us, can, can work its way into our spirituality as well. I think that original sin of making it about us and self-interest works its way into our spirituality as well. And so all of a sudden, it becomes about us. It becomes about me. It becomes about, look at me. I mean, one of the things that Dr. House and I are constantly talking about, and, and, and Justin Lineberry with a phrase of worship, and I are constantly talking about it as we meet together and talk together, and as the clergy and the worship leaders, is what is the difference between being a performer and being a worship leader? Because a performer says, excuse me, could you turn those spotlights just a little more toward me? And a worship leader says, I want you to kind of look through me and see Jesus Christ. So the challenge of it is, 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 is which is it? Why do we do what we do? And, and, and how do we keep it from becoming about us? How do we keep, you know, from becoming celebrity preachers or celebrity singers or, or, or make it all about look at me? And how do we keep it from becoming, I don't know why they get to sit up there on the front row. I don't know why they get to lead that ministry because everybody knows I would be better at it. I mean, she gets to do it all the time. I just think that's unfair. And why does he get to be the, and why does she get to, and why does he get to, and why does, and pretty soon it's all about this, this stuff inside of us. So Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 6, 
He said, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. Don't, don't do what you're doing just so others can see you. It's about your relationship with God. He goes, if, if you just want to be seen by others, then you got your reward. They saw you. And he says, and, and when you give, when you give your alms, when you give your offerings, don't sound the trumpet before you like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be praised by others. Because if that's what you're looking for, you got it. Okay, there you go. I mean, Nancy and I give to our church, but I was thinking the other day, wouldn't it be cool if when we gave our offering, if we came in with one of those kind of six-foot cardboard things, you know, that had the name of the church on it and the amount we're given, so we can go, excuse me, this is our offering to the church. <laughs> Just want you to know. And if you decided to rename it Moore's Chapel, I mean, I'm okay with that. <laughs> There's already an exit on 485. Humility. I mean, Jesus said, be careful because one of the commandments is not to have idols. And, and so when we think of idols, we often think of things. But what Jesus is teaching us is that we often are the idol. We're the idol that we want everybody to notice. So ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And, and here's the thing. Everything that the Pharisees said was true. But the mistake came when he started comparing himself to others. Now, we have to be careful about that when we start comparing ourselves to others. I mean, everything's kind of relative. There, there are a lot of people that I can compare myself to that I look pretty good. I mean, when I, when I pick up the newspaper or when I pull up the, you know, the news on, on the computer or on the tablet and you start kind of reading the headlines and you see some of the things that human beings can do to other human beings, Pretty soon you're going, you know what, I am a pretty good guy. I actually, compared to these people, I'm incredible. I'm actually pretty awesome. But, but sometimes we need to think about who we're comparing to. Over the summer, as I shared with you, I, I kind of had this desire in, in, in leading. I wanted to read more about Mother Teresa, so I bought a couple books. One that, you know, she was a collection of her writings. The other was about her. And, you know, I, I started reading about Mother Teresa, and I'm going, you know, I, I don't look so good anymore when I do a comparison there because... I mean, Mother Teresa was one that they even tried to talk to her. You, you can stay in the convent and then go out to the slums and minister to the people and then come back home at night, you know, and you get a good meal and sleep in a safe bed because it's kind of dangerous there and the food's not going to be great and you could get sick and, and, and it's just be, you know, it's just not safe there. Shouldn't do that. And she goes, no, actually I feel called by God to live with the people. Not simply to minister to them, but to live among them, to experience what they experience. And when I start looking at Mother Teresa, I'm going, be careful what you brag about there, big guy. Because you don't compare. But actually, the scripture tells us, if you want to do a comparison, compare yourself to Christ. There's a scripture in Philippians 2, verse 5, that we have a tendency to read a lot. It's a very popular scripture. It says, have the mind that was in Christ Jesus. You know that scripture, Philippians 2, 5? That, that though he was in the form of equality with God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but, but rather he humbled himself and, and he came to live among us, took on human form, being in the form of a slave, and, and he became obedient, obedient even to the point of death, death upon the cross. You remember that scripture? Well, there's another scripture right before. There's two verses, just two verses back kind of sets that up. We tend to leave out the context 
The context is critical. You know, there's a reason Paul said have the mind of Christ. And it wasn't just a spiritual thing about be like Jesus. It, it had something else. The context, backing up two verses, Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So have the mind that was in Christ Jesus. You see the context? See how that changes everything? It's about how we look at, if you're going to compare, then the comparison is to be, look at others as better than you and try to have the mind that was in Christ Jesus. So I, I think about this self-assessment that we get to fill out. But the question becomes, if God asked me to write out a self-assessment about my relationship with him, what would I say? And if God asked you, I want you to complete this self-evaluation, self-assessment of your relationship with me, what would you say? Fred Craddock, a great biblical scholar and preacher, says, too, when we read the scripture, we have to be careful because we have a tendency when we come in to agree with the Pharisee and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like the tax collector. And when we leave, if we're not careful, we'll be going, God, I thank you I'm not like the Pharisee. The question is, what are you like? So as we prepare to sing our closing hymn, as we pray together, I want to give you just a moment to think about your walk with God and if these two prayers are self-evaluation, self-assessments with God, what would you say in yours? Let's pray.